Amen. Natalie mentioned that Pastor Eric is with his brother, which is true, but what she did not mention that is also true is that he's become extremely sick, ill, in the brain, actually. He's got a brain illness so bad that he's willing to be taken to an Alabama football game. I know, I know. So pray especially for him. Get out of here. Sterling, our uh, friend over there in the corner, is an Alabama fan, so uh, be sure to not talk to him ever again. (laughs) We are going to continue in the book of Galatians in our series, Live Free, and uh, we're going to just keep trucking through the book. We're going to start in chapter 2 today. Uh, Eric preached last week in chapter 1, and we're going to see throughout this whole book this concept of grace, this concept of faith, grace received through faith, come up again and again and again and again. In many ways, it's a really, really simple book because there's really only one point. It's all about grace. So you kind of get to hear six sermons about the exact same thing over this series, which I think is really good, Uh, especially because this concept can be pretty challenging to understand. Um, Raise your hand if you believe we live in a society that is really gracious to one another. Or raise your hand if you believe we live in a society that is quite competitive, right? That is largely based on meritocracy, right? That's largely based on if you contribute this much, I'll give you that much and no more, maybe less, right? And so Galatians, as Paul is talking about grace, is a book that confronts us. It actually challenges us in many ways to our core. Even though we're being offered something freely, we don't get it, we don't like it, we don't know how to give it, and the book becomes a challenge. Let me get this out of the way. And so, just wanted to say that to prepare. This chapter in particular is largely about conflict. We're going to use this phrase, confronting grace. But this book, this chapter in this book in particular is confrontational. We'll see Paul and Peter kind of stand toe-to-toe against each other. I actually had a conversation um, with a good friend back from West Michigan, where I come from, who's a part of a church that has experimented with some things similar to our Kingdom Life communities, but um, a little different, a little more scattered, and they've... Uh, they found themselves in a season of conflict. And I asked him, hey, what are some of the most important things you've learned? He's an elder in this community in kind of a pivotal moment. Most important things in how to live with one another well, how to serve in Christ with each other well. Um, And the first thing that he said is community loyalty, which I thought was really interesting. Um, Not loyalty to an individual, right? Not loyalty to me, not loyalty to Eric. We should have loyalty to one another, but community loyalty. And by that, he means we share together in a call to do the work of God that he has put us here for. And we're loyal to one another. That means when these other three points happen, we don't flee. The other ones being learning to teach one another before it happens that we will hurt one another. I thought that was really interesting, too, because if you've lived with a human being long enough, you've hurt them, and you've been hurt by them, 
right? Birth itself, I think, is a great primer for human relationships, full of pain, right? Even blood, right? Other things. Human interactions are painful. They, we hurt each other. It's just what living in a sinful world is like. And if we can be a people who can avoid hurting each other, but when the inevitable happens, learn to be a people of grace, oh, how beautiful would that be? The third thing he said was defining the relationships, making sure that we know kind of who we are with one another, not keeping secrets from one another. And then the fourth one, which really plays into it, and he said by far the most important was forgiveness, learning to be a people who forgive. They did a teaching series on forgiveness. We're going to do a teaching series on Galatians but they determined after they preached for about three weeks on it that they should probably preach for about three more months on it. And so they just kept pounding home forgiveness, 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 forgiveness. And so here in chapter 2 of Galatians, we see this kind of clash between the grace of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God freely offered, and conflict. Conflict between people. And I want to invite you this morning and throughout the rest of this Galatians series to yourself treat honestly the conflicts that you may have with grace. Being a person who receives it. Being a person who gives it. So that you come face to face with the one who is gracious. Confront him head on. And in doing so, maybe be healed. Amen? Amen. All right, let's open to Galatians. It's a good chapter. I've never preached this way before. We're just going to go through the book and kind of say some things along the way. Sound good? Okay. All right. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. So, 14 years later, he talked in chapter 1 about his first visit to Peter now, he's waited 14 years. Last week, Pastor Eric showed a map of some of the regions that Paul went to. Paul went on three journeys in his lifetime. One, went back to Jerusalem. Two, went back to Jerusalem. Three, did not quite make it back to Jerusalem because he was martyred in Rome. Paul is returning to Jerusalem for the second time. If any of you remember our series in Acts that we did a little while ago, uh, there's a really pivotal chapter that we talk about a lot, Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. That happened later, not this second visit later. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and already we're getting a sense of Paul's character, of the way that Paul operates. He is God-directed, right? He is God-responsive. You may recall from the first chapter this phrase, Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? And that's rhetorical because the answer is he's only concerned with what God has to say about him. And you see right off the bat, I went in response to a revelation when Paul received the gospel that in chapter 1 he's so adamant came fully and completely from God, it was from a revelation on the road to Damascus when Jesus himself appeared and told him the story of grace, the story of new life. 
gave him the gift of the Holy Spirit through a gentleman named Ananias, and then he went on. And he hasn't stopped that pattern of living in response to revelation, of seeking only the will of the Lord, of seeking only the favor of the Lord. Jesus said when he was in ministry on earth, he did only what he saw the Father doing. Paul is trying to do only what he sees the Father doing, continuing to live in step, in step, in step with the voice of God. And so if you are a person who wants to be confronting grace, and in a better way maybe to say that is to be seeking grace, I think this is a great place to start. Seek the revelation of Jesus Christ. Seek his will and walk in it. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. So let me ask you a question. Was Paul confident, based on what we heard last week in chapter 1 and a little recap I just gave, was Paul confident in the gospel that he knew? Extremely so. Was Paul confident in his call specifically to the Gentiles, not just the Jews? Extremely so. He'd already devoted 15 plus years of his life to that work at the cost of his body, the cost of his mind, at the cost of his health. Is Paul humble enough to be willing to submit to the wisdom of the church in order to confirm that his gospel is true and that his race is being run in faith? Interesting. Isn't that fascinating? I don't know many people more confident than Paul, the apostle, at least the way he comes off in his books. Confidence in your call even understanding the truth and knowing that what you've been given is the truth is not a good enough reason to avoid humbling yourself to the wisdom of God's people. Grace and conflict. And so, as another aside, test yourself. If you're confident, be confident. If you're assured, be assured. Test yourself. Humble yourself. Test your message. Test your work. Jesus tells a story of a house that's built on the sand. Where's your house built? Throughout the New Testament, there's various allusions to people building on the solid foundation that is Jesus Christ out of materials. And when the fire comes, what will come of them? Test yourself. Meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Interesting. So back 
just to recap the context, Paul goes to Jerusalem, and um, there he sees a lot of people, we call them Judaizers, who say that they're following Christ, but are demanding the Gentiles, that is, those who are not Jews, to be circumcised. Do any of you know what circumcision is? All right, good. We don't have to speak of that out loud here in this holy place. Many other, uh, right, the rites, the rituals, the ceremonies, they were demanding that the Gentiles follow all of these things. And Paul was saying, no, this is unnecessary. In Christ, the Gentiles do not need to become Jews. They need to be set free by the good news of salvation, grace, faith. And so he shows up, and these Judaizers are looking at Titus, who is one of Paul's disciples who's been following him throughout these last years of ministry, himself putting his body on the line for the gospel, seeing miracles take place, right? Seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit born in the lives of all of these people who've received the Holy Spirit directly through the grace of Christ, not through an old covenant. And these Judaizers are looking at Titus and they're saying, like, sure, you're doing some stuff, but you still need to be, or else you won't really get, you know, Paul's mad. He's mad. And he doesn't let him. The matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on our freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ, and to make us slaves again. Why would they want them to be circumcised? I think it's a matter of control, right? I think it's a matter of dominance, the ability to say, I was here first, I have more rights than you do. It's kind of the uh, animal farm sort of situation, is it not, right? The equal but different, <laughs> we're all equal but I'm better than you are type of situation. And Paul here exhibits something again that I think is really interesting. I'll ask it to you in the form of a question. What does it mean to be so assured in Christ that you're humble enough to question the faithfulness of all your work. To get on your knees and say, hey, this is my stuff. Have it, see it, observe me, know me, critique me. And yet still confident enough to assess the hypocrisy of another for the protection of those you love. And I think that last point is really fascinating too, right? If we go to the end of that, we did not give in to them for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I think it speaks something interesting to his insurance. What does Paul know about himself with regard to Christ? More importantly, what does he know of Christ? That the work is good, that he has been saved, that he has been healed, that he has been sent. And so why is Paul concerned? Because of his love for another. Why does Paul want to test his work? Because of his love for another. Why do the Judaizers want to cause the Gentile Greeks to be circumcised? Because of their desire to control another. You see the difference? You see the difference? Test your work. Test your heart. Test your compassion. Paul's not concerned about self-justification. Why? He knows Jesus. 
He's concerned with the truth of the gospel for the sake of those whom Jesus loves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. <laughs> Let me read that again. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show any favoritism. They added nothing to my message. It's fascinating. God does not show favoritism. Do you? The Judaizers who were trying to have Paul and many others circumcised were looking and they were seeing people who looked different, who were raised different, and they were judging them. They were judging them based on the similarity to the history that they'd lived, right? Oh, you had a past that was fairly similar to mine. Cool, we can be friends. Oh, you had a past that's very different from mine. I'm a little skeptical. They were judging people based on tribe, they were judging people based on preferences of various things, right? You remember the, uh, the, the Pharisees whom Jesus butted heads with all the time had added to the law many, many, many things. They weren't even in the law of God, but they were really just sort of preferential applications of the law. Do you show favoritism? Do you judge people based on their similarity to your history, to your preferences, to your lineage, Or do you judge people based on the grace of God? What do you judge yourself by? I think in reading this chapter, a major weakness of us as human beings that has been standing out to me, and not just this chapter, the whole of Galatians, is this strong, nearly unquenchable fire, save for the grace of Jesus, washing it out of our souls not only to judge others, but to be judged by others. I hate it when other people judge me, but I love it when they judge me right. <laughs> boy, oh boy, if that person just said something good about me, think of what that would feel like, right? The approval of another, the judgment of human beings is actually one of our greatest Desires. Think about it from when you were a kid, right? If you were privileged enough to grow up with your parents, or if you were not and you had an adult figure who you looked up to, how meaningful was it what they said about you? You hear about various people who are stuck in abusive relationships, right? And yet their greatest desires are the approval of the one who is harming them. There's something innate in us that longs to be judged by other people. We hate it when they judge us a way that we don't like, but we so deeply want to be judged the way we wish they would see us. And because of that, we in turn do that to one another. And I look out and I see the clothes that you're wearing and I say, A, C, D plus, right? Where's David? 
F, thank you. <laughs> Get that mustard off. Ew. <laughs> Unless you're having a cookout, then it's great for hot dogs and stuff. You know, you don't risk. We love to be judged, and we also love to judge, right? If we judge somebody else, great, they think good of us. Flattery. Is flattery useful? <clears throat> Not really. We love to judge others as lower than ourselves. Why? Because it makes us feel good, right? I'm better than they are. We call this bullying. The ever strong desire to judge and to be judged by others. And yet, what does Christ say? What is the Holy Spirit saying through Paul the Apostle in this letter of Galatians? Is it that the Judaizers will judge you well? Nope. Is it that the world will judge you well? Nope. It's that it is not even a question. It's not even a question. It's the grace of God. On the contrary... They recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. Notice how Paul is so clever to distinguish them not as Jew and Gentile, but as circumcised and Gentile, to make his point that much stronger. James... Cephas and John, Cephas being Peter, those esteemed as pillars, the ones Jesus himself appointed as his apostles, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. What a good endorsement. When they recognized the grace given to me, and that is good. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So first things first, what did they recognize in Paul that they approved? The grace. Was it his profound oratory ability? Was it the strength of his body? Was it his winsomeness? His wardrobe? And it was the grace they recognize the grace. And then as an extremely important aside, what is all that they asked him to do? Let's read it out loud together. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. It's almost an aside, but I think it's pretty essential. If you are interested in judging and being judged by others, how much time do you have to care about the poor? And if you don't care, and what you do care about is the grace that you've been shown, the gifts that you've been given that you did not deserve, what sort of heart and compassion do you have for the poor? In fact, they go hand in hand. And if we're a community that neglects the poor, that forgets the poor, that doesn't embrace the poor, 
and love them as our own, are we really a people of grace? I don't know, but there's a possibility that that's a strong sign we are not. When Cephas came to Antioch, now time skip, right? Left Jerusalem, Paul's in Antioch now, a city just north up the coast of the Mediterranean. Peter comes to see. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas, the one who's been going with Paul to the Gentiles all of these years, was even led astray. First, James sent some people who were probably well-intentioned, but who were thinking a little bit more on Jewish merit than on grace of God. And they planted this little seed of condemnation, of separation, of tears, of status. So that Peter comes, right? He doesn't mean anything of it. His theology is probably pretty good. But he likes these people. He doesn't want them to think bad about him. So he really just eats with the Jews because in their customs, you're not allowed to eat with the Gentiles. So he lets them be over here. I'll be over here. We'll kind of keep our circle together. We'll be really happy. Have a good time together. Even Barnabas was so corrupted. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew. Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. Referencing his freedom that he's found in Christ. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Interesting. Very interesting. And I think very relatable. In other words, Peter had experienced the freedom of Christ, right? He had even uh, seen the vision. You remember Peter's vision, possibly, uh, when he was before Cornelius' house, and there was this mat that fell, and there were all of the foods that Jews are not allowed to eat, and he saw them, right? And the Lord spoke plainly to him, take, eat. He said, what, I can't eat this? And he disobeys God in order to stay true to his customs <laughs> in his heart for just a moment. No, eat it. And Peter realizes the grace and the freedom in Christ. You a Jew, but you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? A few points. Point number one, always line up your conduct with the truth of the gospel. If you know something is true, Act as if it's true. If in Christ, Gentiles and Jews are made co-heirs with one another, live in such a way. If you know that you're called to serve the poor and the give of the grace that you've received, offer forgiveness like you've been shown forgiveness, conduct yourself in such a way that is true. The other point, remember, even leaders can fall. 
sometimes especially. And we pray for people who are confident and assured enough in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ to stand up when they do. Speak to them plainly. Confront them in grace. Was Paul trying to judge Peter and shut him down? I would argue no. What Paul was doing was reminding Peter of the grace that he had been given and reminding him of the grace as it ought to extend out to the ends of the earth. And then lastly, I'll ask this question a little more. When you've got judgment on your mind, the desire to judge and to be judged by others, are you going to hold others to a higher standard than yourself? Inevitably so. Check. Check yourself. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And he continues, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, which is both true and a joke, (laughs) because we are sinful Gentiles, those of us who are not Jews by birth, and yet so are Jews. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ... We Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. In other words, Paul is saying, I used to live in such a way that I would never be found amongst sinners. I was too holy and pure. And then God destroyed that sinful tendency lie In me, if I were to try and build that up again and separate myself from the sinners, I would be destroying the work of Christ. Rebuilding an idol, rebuilding a pole, an altar to a demon. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing.
It's about grace. And our opportunity as we continue to move through Galatians is to encounter grace and the freedom that comes with it. Here we're encountering the core message of Galatians. The whole thing right here. And the whole gospel that Paul received that, I remind you, the pillars of the faith added nothing to. The gospel that he's defending against hypocrisy. I died so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. What would I care about the judgment of another human being when God has judged Jesus Christ worthy of it all and my life is now in Christ? Think about it. What does God say about Jesus? Right hand, <laughs> my beloved, one with me. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. What do I care what you say about me? <laughs> but I do care what God says about me. And I do care about lining up my walk with the truth of the grace that I've received. And why would I judge you because what was my role in the judgment of Christ if but to crucify him? So I have no right to judge you. When Paul talks about the law, when he talks about works, he's talking about much of what we have in the Old Testament, right? But he's talking about a lot more than that too. He's talking about the way that the law creates a pattern in us of works that's the greatest that we can accomplish without the grace of Christ. And the law does more than just show us what is good. It proves to us that we are sinners against God and against our neighbor. Law and works lead to sin. You'll see this argument fleshed out as we walk through Galatians even more, and I encourage you to keep confronting it. Sin against God and against neighbor. Justification, and when you see justification and righteousness uh, throughout the New Testament and even the Old Testament, it's almost always the exact same word. So you can really think about those as the same concept, this uh, uh, diakonos uh, concept. And it comes in adverbs and in adjectives and in nouns, and so it gets translated a few different ways. But it's all the same kind of concept which in some is to be made right before another. We're familiar with justice in our legal system. It basically comes from that. When Paul is talking about the righteousness of Christ imbued upon us, he's specifically talking about being made right before God. Right? Neighbor? That one we still have to grapple with. When we sin, we sin against God and we sin against neighbor. In Jesus Christ, everything that you have done wrong, even against neighbor, as it pertains to your relationship with our Father in heaven, is made right, is made good, is made true, is buried in the grave with Jesus. But as it pertains to our neighbor, we're still left with the work of reconciliation, right? Where's faith come in? Faith is the assurance, the confidence 
that God in Christ has made you right before him in such a miraculous way that you can live rightly by your neighbor. Does that make sense? And if we're saved, which is another word he uses a bunch here in this chapter, it's important for us to understand what we are saved from and what we are saved to. And if we go to this next slide, I want to bring up a few things. This timeline of salvation. And this is important because it pertains to grace. And if we don't learn how to receive grace well through faith, then we're not going to be able to offer it well. And we're never going to live rightly by one another. And we're going to be in conflict with one another that isn't forgiving, but that is condemning. When were you saved? It's a trick question. When were you saved? Well, you were saved when you confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord. When you were baptized, right? But you were saved long before that. The work on the cross itself was satisfactory for you. But you were saved long before that. Because when God planned the cross, he was thinking of you. You were saved in the moment that God even imagined it. And yet your salvation is not even done. And so you're both fully saved and yet our salvation embodies the promise of the future of a resurrection body and a restored heaven and earth. Amen? And so when it comes to works, when it comes to faith and grace, tell me, and I ask you this because I think Paul was asking Peter this. Paul was asking the Judaizers this. Tell me, which one of your works caused God to plan from the beginning before he even created? Which one of your righteous deeds was the one that made Jesus take up his cross? Can you, can you find it? Which one of your righteous deeds led you to confession? I know for me it was my recognition of sin and the righteousness of Jesus Christ that led me to confession. Did I confess? Yes, praise the Lord. How many of you by good works can go into the ground and bring your body up out of it? How many of you can do enough good works that when wars and famines and hurricanes and fires and earthquakes and thunders consume the whole earth, you can whoop, make it new again? What is it by that you are saved? Grace. And what do you need to do? Believe. Have faith. Trust that when God says, I love you, that when God says, I forgive you, that when God says, no, seek my kingdom first and everything else will be added to you, that that's enough. And give the grace that you've received. It's a miraculous salvation. It has nothing to do with your lineage. 
through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Elsewhere, he says, the hope of glory. I beg you to hear me. I am a pretty talented person. I cannot do anything that comes close to Christ living in me of my own strength and will. It's the grace of God. Righteousness is the fullness of Christ and his life in you that we can achieve only by dying to ourselves. And I don't deserve Christ's reward. But Christ lives in me. And so if grace is offered to me on the basis only of faith, and I know it is, who am I to say that it doesn't belong to them, whoever the them might be for you? Any works, any human lineage, any tradition that is applied as a requisite to the reward is just a reduction of the ward, of the reward. And you may be thinking as you live a life of adding things and necessities and requisites, you may be thinking that you're adding righteousness, but you're not. You're standing as a guard at the door that has been made open by Jesus. Righteousness is a gift. Life itself is a gift. Heaven is a gift, and we receive it by believing that Jesus Christ, God's only Son, has given us all of these things. When we talked about justification, there's often, you'll hear a counter word, and we'll talk more about this probably throughout Galatians, called sanctification. Just as a starting point, because this concept will come up, justification being made right before God, I want you to think about it like this. Adoption. To be justified is to be adopted into the house of God. Nobody who is adopted is adopted because of the work that they do, but they're adopted because of the love of those who seek to bring them into their house. And so it is with us and the Lord. When he calls our name and says, you, come to my house, I hear, I believe, and I go. Sanctification, which is the process of living rightly and learning to live righteously, is learning how to live like the family that runs the house. <laughs> When we talk about justification, we talk about being adopted into the family of God. When we talk about sanctification, we talk about learning to live like the family of God. And yet any of you who have children know that that takes some time. <laughs> any of you who have adopted know that sometimes that takes an especially long time. <laughs> I wrote four questions for you or prompts, and I want to invite the worship team to come up. And we'll sing uh, as, we, as we play out. But I want you to take seriously these four questions and write down your answers. If you've got room still on your paper, I know some of you don't. There's fine. Elsewhere maybe is better. What are the reasons you still believe you don't belong in the house of God? Those judgments that you've let come against yourself, that you've kept 
that have kept you from really believing, from really having faith that you are an heir, a son with Christ in the household of our Father. Maybe you still battle these things. Maybe it's worth remembering what you've been brought through. The second one, and this is a much harder one. You can spend your whole life answering this one. What are the ways that you live as if you don't belong in that house? Are you living in ways that are inconsistent with the grace that you've been shown? Three. Are there any standards you hold others to, but you don't keep yourself? Be honest. Don't lower your standards. Live up to the grace you've been given. And then lastly, with regard to remember the one thing, remember the poor. Do not forget the poor. In other words, we forget the poor easily, reaping the benefits of grace without extending it. So I ask you, what are the benefits of the grace of God that you've received? And who are those that you ought to be extending it to? Let's pray. Father, we receive your grace. We know that you died for us. And that we can stop fighting these fights. We can stop searching for more. Instead, Lord, we come here and lay ourselves down as ones who have died with you. Lord, we give in to your grace. We ask that you would give us even more faith, even more belief where we have doubt that we might receive more of it. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to come alive in us. Pray that you would help us to stop judging. We pray that you would help us to stop seeking the judgment of one another. So, Lord, we confront your grace and ask that you would help us be people who confront one another as brothers, as sisters, as co-heirs, and not as enemies. In Jesus Christ. Amen. As we continue to play, take some time.